Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Yeah, I saw you kind of apologize for your cross of him during your closing. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to. I think lawyers take too much pleasure sometimes in cross-examining. They beat up a poor witness. And uh, I always tell people, remember David and Goliath. You know, you're the Goliath. Please rise. Court is now in session. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? So uh, one thing that we haven't told uh, or they, they won't know listening to this, this is actually the first podcast that we're recording right after Christmas. And the first podcast right after you and Jeff and <laughs> Rebecca went and got a great verdict uh, last week, uh, the week before, the Thursday before Christmas. So uh, congratulations on that, and uh, and how are you holding up? Thank you, thank you. It was it was exciting, and that was that was work by the whole firm. I mean, everybody pulled together. But um, I'm doing good, except I still I still dream every night that I'm in trial, yeah. and I wake up worried about the charge conference or documents for a witness or something. So I'm hoping that stops soon. That's the worst part of trial. I think is after everything's over, and hopefully you've uh, you've uh, won, and uh, you're still waking up in the middle of the night thinking about what you have to do. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I you know because we just went right into Christmas, kind of. So I really I barely was at home. I went from the trial hotel home for the holidays and so you know i was like waking up christmas morning panicking about the charge conference <laughs> but well maybe we'll talk about that one uh, on another show it was a great uh, a, a great result involving a uh, the tragic death of a um, of a stunt man on the um, on the walking dead but uh, but just uh, great work by you guys okay. um, but here today we are here to talk to uh, two great guests from uh, Long Island New York we're going to talk to Ted Rosenberg and Aaron Hargis they are partners at the law firm of Rosenberg and Gluck uh, in Long Island, New York. They have offices in both uh, Suffolk County and Nassau County. And uh, you can look them up on their website at lilawyer.com. That's LA, Long Island. Yes. Ted, Ted, Aaron, how are you? Very good. We're doing great. Thank you. Well, um, this case that we're talking about is just a fascinating case, and we had a chance to talk briefly uh, off air uh, ahead of time, and I, I can't wait to talk about it uh, on air so everybody can hear sort of the story that, uh, that went on with this case. But let me first uh, introduce you to, uh, to our listeners so everybody knows who we're talking to. So uh, Ted Rosenberg uh, founded his law firm, um, and Ted it practices law uh, all over New York, but uh, uh, primarily in Long Island, New York. Uh, and he has been both the uh, director or, uh, sorry, was the chair and is now a director of the Suffolk County Bar Association. He's a graduate from Boston University and St. John's School of Law. Uh, he is an officer in the Suffolk County Academy of Law, and he is a graduate of the Advanced Trial Program for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy and uh, has also uh, received the Certificate of Honor from the New York State Bar Association uh, and has uh, handled uh, numerous cases since uh, starting the practice of law in the early 80s and, um, and just has a fantastic firm up in Long Island. And uh, his partner, Aaron Hargis, uh, is a graduate of Vassar College and then went to Brooklyn Law School. And she, while she was in law school, she was the vice president of their uh, ATLA, or Association of Trial Lawyers chapter. Uh, and was a um, assistant district attorney for King County, New York, 
after she was a, a, an assistant district attorney, then uh, practiced medical malpractice with a, with a law firm in Manhattan, uh, and then joined um, Rosenberg and Gluck and has been there and is a partner there now. And she's also been named a rising star uh, by super lawyers. And so, uh, so Ted and Aaron, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for Thanks. having us. Thank you. So, uh, so this case that you tried, um, and, and this is something we'll talk about as we get into it, but it, it was something that struck me. If you just look at this at first blush, it didn't look like the easiest case. Uh, and it looked, looked like, um, you, you would have some liability problems, but that's what makes these cases to talk about fascinating. Uh, but your client was Nicolette Iacone and, uh, the case was Iacone versus Nassau County, New York and Sal Passanisi. Uh, and it was tried in November of 2017 in Nassau County, New York. Uh, we, we're going to talk about this, but it resulted in, uh, after a uh, liability verdict, in a settlement of $25,425,000 uh, on behalf of Nicolette Iacone. Uh, Nicolette was a 17-year-old rising senior, um, and she was heading home a little bit after 9 o'clock on uh, September 8, 2007, uh, and she was on a road called Irwin Place, and she was going to make a left turn onto Oceanside Road. And uh, when she made that left turn, she was T-boned by a driver who was driving about 10 miles over the speed limit, going about 40 in the 30. Uh, and he, he did have uh, alcohol in his system, and I uh, saw that he was about a .09. But the real problem in the case was that this was around a, a curve uh, that Nassau County uh, had known, had problems, had complaints about, uh, had actually known that there had been other collisions there. And essentially the problem was that the uh, safe sight distance uh, was too small for how fast the speed of the road was. Uh, I saw from the evidence, it was anywhere from 100 to 200 feet. I, I think at the minimum it said 100 and then somewhere it might've been up to 200 feet. But for a, a, road that uh, it has a speed limit of 30 miles per hour. It's supposed to be at least 335 feet. Uh, and there were there was also a hedge there. There was also a, a, a traffic box that called a loop detector, a cabinet that was blocking the visibility. And so it made it so both the defendant driver and uh, Miss Iacone couldn't see each other until it was too late and involved this uh, terrible collision uh, that uh, that resulted in a, um, a, a, a terrible brain injury to uh, Nicolette, um, who was, uh, uh, looking at the PowerPoint you sent us, was just a beautiful young woman, and this was just devastating. Um, so she suffered a, a bad brain injury, suffered a lacerated spleen, spleen uh, and injuries to her um, Achilles tendon on her left foot, uh, to her right eye. Uh, had numerous skull fractures and, and numerous other um, uh, injuries. And, um, and then uh, Aaron and, and Ted just tried a fantastic case and were able to get a liability verdict where they, the jury found that uh, the county was 86% responsible for the collision and that the um, defendant driver was 14% responsible. Um, guys, how was that as just sort of a short overview of the case? I think it was very good, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so so a couple of things that I you know struck me, and I and I really want you to talk about how this case unfolded for you. But you know, at the at at, at you know when this case comes in the office, 
uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, Nicolette had a stop sign. She pulls out onto somebody who uh, has the right of way and gets into a collision. So from that standpoint, it looks like, you know, there's a good argument that the, that the accident is her fault. Um, and then, you know, she's 17 years old. And then I thought I also saw, and I need you all to, to tell me if this is correct, that was there at least some testimony that someone thought they smelled alcohol on her breath and then that was kept out of evidence? It was kept out, yes. Yeah. So okay. they, she had initially been charged with a DWI wow. Um, as, wow. uh, immediately after the collision and then blood drawn in the hospital revealed that she did not have alcohol in her system. So all of those charges were dropped. But even there were photographs uh, indicating several bottles of beer were in her car. In her car, right. And yeah. they were broken, obviously, from the collision. But even though there were no criminal charges that were pursued against her, the county attorney still wanted to introduce evidence to try to show she was intoxicated at the time. So we were able to keep that out. Wow. Well, that, that's that's great work. But but that does bring me back to my question. When this case first comes in, and obviously she had catastrophic injuries, um, but it, that seems like a tough case you, just from first blush uh, when, you're, when you're looking at it, that it might not be the easiest case. Well, in my experience, once jurors hear drunk driver, right. uh, usually right. that's the end of it. And they're not going to point the finger at anybody else. They don't, really don't even care what the other factors are. Uh, so that, I, to me, that was the real big challenge in the case. Uh, that really, you had a drunk driver and then you were trying to point the finger at a municipality in Nassau County's a fairly conservative jurisdiction. So we were trying to hold the taxpayers of Nassau County responsible, of course, with a jury full of Nassau County taxpayers. Right. And uh, actually, there's a bit more to the backstory. They had gone to another attorney before they ended up at our office, and that attorney had tried to get them to settle the case for the $25,000 tender that was up <laughs> on the other vehicle. Wow. And, and this case was referred to our office by a, a, a smart lawyer who did what every lawyer should do when they have any type of case like this. And he went to the scene and he said that once he went to the scene, it became apparent. It wasn't as apparent by just looking at the police photographs. But once he was at the scene, he said, you know what? I'm not an expert, but my gut's telling me there's something wrong with this intersection. And he was right in that regard. Yeah. And then the evidence that developed, and this is where I, I really want you all to comment on, but I, I, and I do have to say, Ted, in your opening and then in your closing, you, you started off with the same principle, which I thought was just a great way to start off, but it's intersections must meet minimum safe site distance requirements or provide motors with warnings. And that was sort of the theme you built through that case. And then I thought you all did just a great job of showing the evidence that you had that the county knew that there, you know, there had been complaints about there not being enough sight lines, that there had been numerous requests for, um, for them to install a traffic uh, light there, uh, and then even to put in a guardrail. And then there had been a number of collisions at that intersection or close to that intersection. Um, and, and, and what I really liked that you did, Ted, in your closing was you, you, the evidence went back to 1985. And as you pointed out, uh, that was five years before Nicolette was even born. Um, and then you sort of brought it forward uh, that they got another complaint in 1986, another one in 1992 when she's two years old, another one in 1995. And just, you know, just sort of, you know, bringing the two of them forward together to win this 
ultimately happens and how much knowledge and notice that the county had compared to um, um, what Nicolette had and, uh, and how they decided not to do anything about it. But what I really want you guys to talk about right now is you had great evidence, but it, but in learning, just talking to you right before this, it wasn't always that way. Tell us how you found that evidence. So we went through the normal discovery process. Uh, you know, a lot of depositions, a lot of documents were demanded, uh, including all prior complaints uh, concerning the intersection. Uh, and we were not given any of those prior complaints. So quite frankly, going into this, we thought, you know, this is a bit of a long shot. Uh, given the facts of this case, uh, but just a couple of weeks before we were ready to start trial, uh, we subpoenaed the entire Department of Public Works file to the courthouse, uh, and Aaron and I went there with the scanner, and we went through every piece of paper uh, in that voluminous file, and that's where we found these old complaints uh, concerning the intersection, where neighbors uh, had written in to the county and to the town uh, saying, hey, you know, th this is... Uh, this is a dangerous intersection. Something's got to get done here. And there was a woman who lived right at the intersection who said, look, these people are knocking my fence down all the time. Do something about this. And uh, for whatever reason, and to this day, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, we didn't have those documents ahead of time. Uh, they were never turned over to us. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as we were concerned, they were, you know, really smoking gun type evidence and uh and that's what really cemented the case for us, I think. And that was for, I think that was a pretty exciting moment. We had <laughs> just left the trial judge's chambers where we had set the jury selection date with her. And we had had a conversation with everybody at that point because the judge was really trying to push for a settlement as they often do. And the county had offered, I think, $75,000 to settle the case. And we had the other vehicles policy up. And so, you know, we said, let's go down and look and make sure everything we need is, is in the subpoena records room. And uh, as Ted started uncovering the documents in the county file, there were certain uh, expletives that were used. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a happy expletives, I'm sure. Happy expletives, yes. Right. And uh, it was really an exciting moment for us because we knew we had really this evidence that was going to help us tremendously. And then the other thing that we realized pretty quickly was that the county attorney had no idea <laughs> that this full file had been turned over. And so what we were able to do was secure a stipulation. He stipped the whole file into evidence. Wow. So it, it really helped us. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. 
They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. At opening, I don't know if you want to, Ted, we had blowups of all of these um, prior complaints. And it wasn't just the prior complaints. In response to these prior complaints, the county had gone out and had actually surveyed the intersection. And the county workers themselves had documented problems with the site distance. But at opening, Ted was planning on using many of the documents that were in this file. And we had enlarged several of these documents. And we knew going in that the county attorney didn't know that they were in the file. They were stipped into evidence. And of course, what we expected happened. And he said, you can't, you can't use these. I didn't, I didn't know these were in the file. And the judge essentially said, look, you know, you stipped these in. We confirmed all of the enlargements were actually in this county file. And the rest was history. We were able to use everything. So, so the first time he's really watching your evidence unfold is as he's sitting there at opening? I believe so. I don't think, <laughs> I personally don't think he was aware that those documents existed. Wow. And they're not just, I mean, to read them, I read at least the ones that were in your PowerPoint. I mean, they're not just they're not just letters from a resident saying this intersection is dangerous or we need a traffic light or we need we need different precautions. It's They're talking about the fact that there's a temple nearby, that there's a school nearby, that people walk nearby. I mean, these letters, to get these into evidence and have them blown up, they're really powerful. Well, and, and a fatality. One of them in particular said it, it would be a tragedy if one of our children were injured. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So th- I thought that one in particular was powerful. Yeah. And it also, uh, you know, I've listened to some of your other uh, podcasts uh, on other trials, and uh, I listened to a conversation uh, where, you know, things lawyers talk about all the time. Do I do want to use a PowerPoint? Do I just want to blow up a poster? Uh, and in this trial, we did both because I think that both of those work for different reasons. And in particular, in summation, when I wanted to emphasize these prior, you know, complaints, uh, it's great to have them and hold them up and leave them up in front of the jury for a long period of time, right, just the old right. fashioned way on a poster board. So we, we use them both ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I mean, I find that really effective when you've got both of them. And then, you you know, a particularly key document, you can just let it sit up there in front of the jury while you're going through the rest of your PowerPoint. Um, but um, but talk also about, so the, the case that was tried was just on the liability question. There was no damages tried. Uh, talk about, uh, I mean, I think most of our uh, listeners find is would that would not be the norm it certainly wouldn't be the norm down here in georgia um that you can actually have a trial just on liability only and not on not on damages talk about that yeah our jurisdiction is bifurcated so you have two separate trials sometimes with the same jury but sometimes with different juries 
In the first portion of the trial, we can only talk about liability. We can't talk about injuries, okay. which to a, can be a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. In a case like this, where you have somebody who's really seriously injured, you're not supposed to get into the injuries at all uh, during the liability portion of the trial. Uh, we kind of got around that uh, by just introducing Nicolette towards the end of the trial to the jury. We had her in the courtroom for maybe a minute or two. That's it. We didn't want to overplay that, but it was immediately apparent uh, to the jurors how significantly she was injured, uh, which obviously we wanted them to know that. Right. And, and so that, that was a question I was going to ask you about whether or not she was in the courtroom. Um, what I, I could see from some of the photos that she uh, it looked like she was doing some exercises and trying to regain strength. Was she able to, to talk or and I guess she probably couldn't remember any of the collision. No, she has no recollection, and her, her voice is really unintelligible to anyone except for her family or people that are used to the way that she speaks. She, so she can speak, but, you know, and she can communicate with people who know her very well, but if you don't, you, you cannot understand her. Okay. Got it. Well, and, and for our listeners, Ted and Aaron were telling us before we started recording that one of the reasons, and it makes sense, that they approached this that this was going to be a liability only trial, at least initially, was because they didn't know about these documents that they got right before trial. And so they didn't know, you know, what kind of case that they were looking at. And as many of our um, listeners and, and our guests talk about this, it can be very expensive to prepare um, the damages portion of a case, especially for somebody as significantly injured as, as yeah. Nicolette. Yes. Yeah, so at the time that the county made us an offer to settle for 75000 I think our disbursements were roughly twice that, and that was just on the liability portion of the trial. And of course, once you get the damages and you start paying neurosurgeons and all of the expensive exhibits you make, yeah, it can really expand from there. Right. Yeah. Which we did. We had started preparing for the damages portion of the trial going into ultimately the mediation where we resolved the case. And I, I remember we had several meetings with the neurosurgeon, and I think we paid him a significant amount. So. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, adds well, up. The, the other way um, her mental state came up during the trial was during uh, the charge because we had uh, crafted a charge um, that the judge read to the jury where essentially she was, Nicolette was held to a, and the plaintiff was held to a lesser standard because of her mental impairment, which resulted from the collision. So I don't know if you got to the charging portion of the transcript, but there was a, a charge that was crafted for that. So things that were solely within um, Nicolette's um, uh, ability to testify to her sight distance, whether she stopped at the um, before entering the intersection, things like that, um, we were held to a lesser standard because of her mental impairment. In New York, we call it an, a noseworthy charge. Yes. Oh, okay. I saw that, and I thought it was a typo, and it was supposed to say noteworthy. No, <laughs> noteworthy. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, well, do, you know, a couple other things I, I wanted to point out, and, and I do want you to talk about the liability case against the county because I thought you all developed that particularly well. Um, but one thing I noticed is that this, so this collision happened on in September of two thousand seven. 
And then the trial was actually November of 2017. So there was 10 yeah. years there. How difficult was that to try the case with that much time that it had elapsed? And then, and then if you want to go into some of the you know, evidence that you had developed about what, what the safe site distance should have been and, how, and what the county could have done about it. Sure. So I didn't think that that 10-year period really hurt us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, we were back and forth with appellate courts on various issues over the years, and that's why it did take that long. Uh, we had, I thought, a very good expert on the case, a certainly very seasoned expert. Uh, he's testified about 700 times uh, in cases, which is, uh, I think, an extraordinarily high number. Of course, uh, people say, well, you know, you're going to have baggage if you've testified that many times. Uh, but I don't think he was really touched on cross-examination in any significant way. And he was very authoritative. Uh, and we relied, you know, a lot on the so-called uh, the Green Book, the uh, AASHTO, you know, manual. Right. Uh, and, and that's what we used to make our exhibits. And that's what we framed his testimony around. Uh and I think it's always important to try to couch these sort of arguments in terms of, you know, what the acceptable standards are, what the rules are, what the regulations are, as opposed to just talking about negligence. And so that's how we framed uh, the plaintiff's case in this. And well, I, I, other, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. Just to continue that, the other nice tie-in was it wasn't just our expert who was testifying that the site distance was problematic at the intersection. We were able to use our expert findings and put that with the county's findings when they had gone out on those prior occasions and had actually surveyed the intersection in response to those complaints. They themselves had said there were problems with the site distance. So that really supported what our expert was saying, and that worked out very nicely. And the other thing that we did was we actually reenacted the accident. So we went out and got exemplar vehicles. And we went uh, under the similar lighting conditions, the same phase of the moon, same time of the year. And uh, with videographers, we placed the cars in different positions uh, with respect to the intersection. And we, we measured off what the sight distance was from somebody seated in each one of those vehicles. Uh, so I thought that was uh, compelling. But what made it even more compelling was our argument was that this hedge uh, acted as a wall, and that really blocked the view as well as that signal box. Uh, and so what we were able to do, our computer guy was able to do, was take photographs, the police photographs that were taken in the days after the accident. And uh, the hedge had been cut back in those 10 years. In fact, it had been removed. But uh, we were able to recreate it on the computer and show exactly how that hedge blocked the view. So I happened to have been watching the jury while this was being done uh, on the screen in front of them. And you could literally, by putting that hedge in that box in, make the cars disappear from each other. Right. And, I, and I thought that was really uh, important uh, exhibit for the jury to see. Yeah, no, I, and I, I thought that was, I, I, I saw those photos that you had, and I thought they were, um, they were very effective. Um, and I should point out the, uh, uh, I call it the AASHTO handbook, but it's the American Association of State Highway Traffic Control Officers. Uh, and essentially, it's a great book to use in any road defect case, uh, along with the manual on uniform traffic control devices. Um, 
that um, where all of these uh, state highway traffic control officers have come together and said, here's how, you know, roads should be designed. And they had minimum standards in there. And so it makes it hard for the state to argue that they shouldn't comply with that since it's the state highway traffic control officers who write that manual. Um, well, and related to that, I'm sorry, Steve, I don't I, mean to interrupt you, but um, especially the, talking about the hedge made me think of this. It seemed like at least in the opening that the that the lawyer for the striking driver didn't really seem to point the finger at the county too much for putting both drivers in this low visibility situation and then it seemed like maybe that had changed a little bit by closings um he had gotten a message yeah and i'm and i guess i'm wondering why that didn't you know why that wasn't a stra- if they used that strategy in discovery as far as you know that seems like the the striking driver's lawyer maybe should have been blaming the county a little bit, but I'm I'm wondering how that all played out. Yeah, listen, he was a, a, he was a tremendous ally for us. We were both pointing our fingers in the same direction. Uh, so I thought he was very like the observation he made is correct. In his closing, I mean, he did a great job for us. Uh, yeah, so. and was he doing that the whole time, or was that something that changed at trial? I don't think that it really changed. Okay, I don't think it really changed. I think he had to point the finger at the county um, yeah. and, and a little bit at, at us during one of the charging conferences. He had requested um, a VTL charge for a driver making left. So, you know, it, it was interesting because he was certainly an ally pointing the finger at the county. Um, everyone after openings backed off of pointing the finger at the homeowners. And so really the only parties left in the case were our client, the other driver, and, and the county. I'd like to make another point uh, yeah. that I think is worth mentioning uh, and having to do with uh, evidence. We also spent uh, quite a lot of time and quite a lot of money uh, doing a computer-generated animation uh, reenactment of the collision. And uh, we did it, and we redid it, and we redid it. And we looked at it and looked at it and decided never to use it. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I think uh, sometimes plaintiffs' lawyers think that, hey, I, I spent money on making this exhibit. I should use it. Right, right. And I, sometimes that's a mistake and you show it to other people and lay people and they're like, why would you want to show this? And they don't see. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that never saw the light of day. But, so. Got it. To follow up on a point Ted said, we had um, had gotten a panel together and we had presented the case early on to people who knew nothing about the case. Focus group. Focus group. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got some insight from them as well. One of the things that many of them focused on was the age of our clients, um, you know, that she had to have done something wrong or inappropriate with respect to the operation of her vehicle because of her age. Um, and, it, you know, it, it really helped us kind of change gears and see what we needed to focus on in prepping the case. Right. And I, and I thought that, you know, you had uh, the eyewitnesses or the people that were following behind them uh, that testified and, and testified that not only did she stop at the stop sign, but then she inched up so that she could try and see. I mean, it really does make it sound like she did everything that she could to pull out safely. And then of course the other driver was driving too fast uh, and coming around a corner uh, that, you know, blocked their, blocked their view. So it, it, it really fell into place. And I should say, I mean, I, I, 
you know, I saw the arguments by everybody and I, it's a tremendous job that your client didn't get hit with some percentage. I mean, even, even 1%. I think they were so angry. The jurors that, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think Aaron's right. Anger does drive people to do, you know, different things. And one thing that maybe would seem insignificant if you weren't there was this metal box that right. was put there was really put there for no reason whatsoever. It was part of this big plan, multi-million dollar traffic control plan. The box was put up in a terrible spot where it really was at the apex of the curve and further impeded vision. Uh, but the controls that were in the box were never actually ever used. And that box sat there for years. And, and the reason was, would be somebody cut a fiber optic cable down the road. So this multi-million dollar computer generated traffic control system paid for by, you know, the county residents never was actually operative. <laughs> and when we talked about it, maybe started talking about it, at least to the point where the county attorney thought we were talking about it too much, he rose up and objected and he said, yeah, come on, this has nothing really to do with it. And I can remember the judge saying, no, I really want to hear this. And I right. think <laughs> Jurors were shaking their head yes, that they wanted to hear it too, because it, it became somewhat of a pissing contest, so to speak, between the county and who they thought had cut the fiber optic cable instead of just fixing it and, and having, you know, this system that they spent millions on be operational. It was, well, you're responsible to fix it. No, you are. And it, it just sat there for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and was it was just another obstruction, uh, you know, right. of, of the sight lines. And so now it you know it served no purpose and it's just blocking everybody's view. It, it's hard to picture, but the it's hard to picture in your mind. But the pictures you sent us, it really does seem like it's in like the worst possible place. <laughs> it was. It was one one thing that I think was very interesting. You know, different things happen during trial and and things play out different ways, but. So we started the case with the homeowners who had these hedges on their property involved, and we settled with them right after openings. Um, right when we were getting ready to um, finish the, the evidence presentation and we had a charging conference, the county attorney asked for a charge with respect to the homeowner's liability. And obviously, we fought against it. And ultimately, there was no charge given. And the judge had tried to help the county attorney out. Um, and in some ways, I think, had said, you know, I haven't heard anything yet that right. would warrant a charge. <laughs> There's no evidence presented. And so, you know, his retort to that was, well, I think there has been. And she said, well, there hasn't. So we were concerned at that point that he was going to ask the court to take judicial notice of the, the involved statute with respect to the hedges something, but he never did. And so there was never a charge given to the jury with respect to the homeowners because of that. So I think that played out to our favor as well. And, yeah. and just some other background with respect to the uh, verdict in New York, if someone is held 50% uh, or more responsible and, and in case like this, uh, they're responsible for all of the damages. So getting over that 50% threshold against the county made the county responsible for all economic and non-economic losses. Yeah, and I, I thought that was interesting. So you have joint and several uh, for economic damages, no matter what the percentage is. But then if it's less than 50%, then 
uh, it's it's an apportionment uh, type uh, uh, pro rata share of the non-economic damages. Correct. Um, that's very interesting. I mean, that, that that you have have both of those. Yeah. So our our goal was we were you know going into it was we wanted to hold the county for at least fifty percent and. Although, although the economic losses in a case like this are so really astronomical anyway. Right. 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 I did wonder, and I didn't look at a lot of the testimony, but, it, but both in the closing and the opening, I was wondering why the county and maybe even why the other uh, lawyer for the, the uh, um, defendant driver didn't go a little stronger after the property owners uh, for having the hedges up there. I mean, that certainly had been part of the case at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, part of it may have been because that our position was that the hedge, the portion of the hedge that really caused the accident was growing in the county right of way, wasn't even on the property owner's okay. uh, property. So they, the, the county had an obligation to, uh, to maintain it. And the county had some witnesses that just did not come across well at all. Um, yeah, I, I the one... The, some of the ones that you read, I think, in your closing uh, made me cringe. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the type of cross that you feel, that after you sit down, you're like, you feel really good about. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of, I don't know who does this, and yeah. it, that seems to never really go well. well in, so, in, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. County witness who had been out to the location a couple times and who had, you know, taken notes and had surveyed the intersection we walked out of court that day after Ted finished crossing him and we actually felt bad for him. It was just <laughs> so pitiful. So. But was that the retired guy? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. yeah I saw you kind of, kind of apologize for your cross of, of him during your closing. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to, I think lawyers take too much pleasure sometimes in cross examining. They beat up a poor witness. And uh, I always tell people, remember David and Goliath. You know, you're the Goliath. The, the right, jurist's right. not going to be rooting for you, you know? Right, yeah. right. Take it easy on some poor guy who's retired, you know? Yeah. I, I did I, think... I heard, I heard a smarter lawyer than me one time say, you can't tear a lawyer... You can't tear a witness's heart out on cross-examination until the jury gives you permission to that, do so. That's, that's exactly right. We, we, we say that same thing around our office. You can't get more angry than the jury allows you to get. Um, I did think it was in, in your cross of him, and, you know, because one thing we haven't talked about is when the county went out to look at uh, these and they, and they did make notes in there, they kept referencing things like bad geometry. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be clear to somebody who's, you know, not a road engineer or a traffic engineer what exactly bad geometry was. Um, and you did a, a great job of bringing out that that meant that sight lines were bad, but that the guy who was there on behalf of the county, that when he went out there to look at it, he never tried to measure the sight lines, right? Yes. Part of the problem is what, what happens uh, is lay people, when they know there's a bad intersection, their gut reaction is, we need a traffic light. We need a traffic light. And so they call up the county or the town and they say, we, we want a traffic light at this intersection. And so they'll go out and they'll do a survey, which they did here, and find out, you know what, there, this is not appropriate fix for the situation, a traffic light. Uh, and that was the end of their inquiry, and that really should have been the beginning of their inquiry. They should have said, okay, a traffic light won't fix this, but what will fix it? And right. that's the thing that the county never took that next step. 
And there yeah. were really simple fixes. You know, our expert testified about some of the calming measures, traffic calming measures that could have been implemented. And you're not talking about expensive things, signage, um, making the, the road that she was making the left out of a one-way street. You know, there were simple things that they could have done. And I tell you, I drove past the intersection recently. It's still like that. It's, oh, you know, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I thought that was effective. Um the, the way it was laid out in your PowerPoint about the all, the things that they could have done and the 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 idea of making it a one-way sh- street was really striking to me because that seems something that would be like, yeah, it would be a pain for everybody to get used to, but it seems like relatively cheap to do and it would have been, made a huge difference. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, wouldn't be clear from uh, the transcripts that we sent you is we could not really find another accident exactly like this one. There were accidents at that intersection, but they did not involve people making a left-hand turn out of Irwin onto Oceanside. Uh, and by speaking to neighbors and other people, they said a lot of people were knew that was dangerous. The people in the neighborhood made a habit of not making a left-hand turn out of there. They would get out of the, uh, the area different uh, route. And perhaps Nicolette just being inexperienced, you know, right. the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. yeah. I thought that one thing I saw in the the county attorney, when you had said all the different things they could do to make that a safer curve, um, and then the county attorney, so this is a guy who who represents the county, basically telling, you know, people on the jury that this, people don't pay attention to signs and signs don't really matter. <laughs> I, I could see that the jury would get very upset at somebody who's on behalf of the county coming out and saying signs don't matter. So... Yeah, the, I, I'd like to speak a little bit about the jury because it is a jurisdiction. Both Nassau and Suffolk County are known to be sort of defense-oriented, you know, jurisdictions. Uh, but the, the jury was smart. These were intelligent people. Uh, they they were well educated and had good common sense. Uh, so, yeah, they weren't buying that. Talk a little bit about your jury selection up there. I mean, you, so you had done a focus group. Had you seen a certain type of juror that you thought would be uh, better for you or did anything come out during jury selection as far as, um, you know, that, that made you think they were either going to be good or bad for you? There was no particular trait. And I, I find, I mean, in my experience, in, in my experience, there it's dangerous to sort of say, you know, I want engineers or I don't like teachers or I did, you know, that sort of thing. Right. My my attitude on it was uh, once we had that evidence that indicated that the county knew about it, that, you know, that was something that we really focused in on, you know, as Aaron said before, what do you expect from the county? And once we had jurors saying, well, if they knew about it and they didn't do anything about it, you know, then I'm going to shut up and I'm going to stop questioning that person and move on and hope to get them. Got it. Did you, um, I can't remember if we talked about this earlier when we were talking about how you, how the jury met Nicolette. Did, were the parents there every day? Yes, the parents uh, were there. Uh, the family was there. Friends were Friends, there. neighbors. Yeah. Wow. Very strong family. Uh, and, and, we had Mr. Uh, Iacone on the stand right at the end of the trial and just uh, had Nicolette wheeled in in her wheelchair. And I said, just for purposes of identification, is your daughter here in the courtroom? Would you point her out? Yes, that's her over there. 
Interestingly enough, one juror came up to me afterwards and said, you know, when you brought Nicolette into the courtroom, because I intentionally looked down, I covered my eyes because I didn't want my feelings. I didn't want to feel sympathetic or anything. I didn't want my uh, verdict to be based on anything like that. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. We had one. There was an alternate that I was very concerned about. He was an engineer. Mm -hmm. He was Israeli. And he seemed like a very stern, hard kind of guy to me. And uh, he stayed as an alternate. And I felt lucky that he stayed as an alternate because I thought he he might be a real leader and might lead them in the wrong direction from my perspective. Uh, But afterwards, when we spoke to the jury uh, and, and I said to him, I said, you know, did you agree? He said, absolutely. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, That's wow. great. Wow. Yeah, I don't even look at him and try to figure it out anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. I, I certainly don't look. I don't try to figure out what I lose. <laughs> there, there was, correct me if I'm wrong. Was she educated in Brazil? Yeah. There was one juror who was educated overseas, and the education is more science-focused. At least she was telling us afterward. And that actually, you know, helped us because the expert for the county at one point was testifying about, you know, the, the force of the impact and the trajectory of the cars and essentially talking about the speed of, of the other involved vehicle um, based upon how the vehicles ended up, this, that, and the other thing. And he admitted that he hadn't measured certain aspects of the road, for instance, the curb that the cars had gone up onto. He didn't measure it. He didn't know how high it was. And um, she had really focused on that. Uh, you know, how can he give any sort of opinion if he's not going to measure all of the the involved um, areas? Right. Yeah, and the, the, yeah, she wanted to let the drunk driver out of the case, which I was glad she didn't do because I thought that might have led to a, <laughs> some appeal. Well, and I, I did. I, I do have to say for defending a drunk driver, uh, I thought that the defense lawyer uh, did a pretty good job of one, pointing the finger at the county, but two, pointing out that, you know, he didn't leave his lane. He hit the brakes. You know, he he did everything you would do. Uh, he was driving a little too fast. He was straightforward about that. I mean, it's it's it seemed like about as much as you could do in defense of somebody who was intoxicated. So he was. I, I don't know what the limit is um, for intoxication where you are, but in New York, it's point oh eight. Yes, that's so he point. was just above the legal limit for intoxication and just above the speed limit, right. which is what right. most people right. drive right. at. You know, I just felt like saying to the jury, I don't, I don't remember what I said, but I mean, who hasn't been there? Right. You know? right. <laughs> right. Right. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re- that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. 
Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. So I, I did want to ask you, so with the county being a defendant, was there any issues of sovereign immunity or how did that work? No, not really. The case law in New York, uh, which changed, uh, we had a court of appeals case a couple of years back called Totoro uh, in the state of New York that really, I think, chopped away at their, you know, their immunity arguments. Okay. It's basically negligence. Well, here... Oh, wow. Because they had gone out also and had looked at the intersection but had not done an adequate investigation, yeah. they couldn't claim immunity for it. So, Got it. Okay. And then uh, the other thing, I mean, uh, you know, the fact that, that Nicolette was only 17 years old, was her um, uh, driver's license limited in any way? Like, was she on a one-year probationary period or anything nope. like that? Nope. A, a, nobody brought that up. And okay. B, I, it didn't come in. Okay. okay. It didn't come in, whether you're licensed or unlicensed or, or anything like that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, at the end of the day, she did everything you were supposed to do, uh, you know, according to the eyewitnesses, which, you know, was extremely helpful. And in the county, and I, I mean, you know, going back to, and I, I, you know, I make sure I want to point out the point this out to our listeners, but the, we've talked before on the podcast about the whole idea of primacy and recency and making sure that you uh, talk about, you know, the, you know, what you want the jury to think about and what you want them to know. And so in both your opening and your closing, starting out and talking from the perspective of the defendant and what they knew and what they didn't do about it, rather than talking about, you know, the, from the perspective of your client. And I thought you did a really effective job of it. And, and like I said, I mean, I really liked uh, how you, how you brought uh, both the county and Nicolette uh, forward together in time to show, you know, she's nine years old when they're being told that, you know, there there's been a fatality out there. Yeah. So, I mean, just to speak to that, I think, you know, plaintiffs have a certain advantage. You can make the case about what you want to make it about. So if you choose to talk about the county nine, 90% of the time, you know, maybe you'll get to hold them in 86%. And then the other argument that I like to make in situations like this is, you know, yeah, the, the drunk driver, I mean, he was negligent. He made, he made a bad decision that day. Right. Uh, and, and for those hours that, you know, he may have had a couple of beers and, and then he was driving, you know, he made a bad decision. And as he came around that turn, you know, maybe he made a bad decision by going a little bit too fast. But the county made bad decisions year after year after year after year. So when you weigh them against each other, you know, take that yeah. into consideration. Exactly. But anyways, is there anything else that, uh, that we haven't talked about that um, you uh, want to make sure our listeners know about? Well, you know, we haven't, we haven't spoke about damages. Yeah, uh, I didn't. And- I did want to point out real quick because you didn't try the damages, but you did send us your damages presentation. And I, and I should say that the uh, demonstratives that you had were really, really good and, and really tell the story of everything that happened to her uh, and, and what she had to go through. But yet yeah, walk through the damages and, and what happened to her. So the, the damages really, uh, it's hard to imagine more devastating injuries mm-hmm. because you have a 17 year old uh, who's, confined, essentially confined to a wheelchair. Uh, 
and on top of that, really cannot communicate verbally with anyone, and is aware of what's going on. I mean, uh, in preparing for trial, our life care planner, uh, a doctor, Parfi, uh, was, he had met with her early on, and then we had him sit down with her again in anticipation of trying damages, uh, and he's asking her to do certain things. And he said, uh, Nicolette, hold up two fingers. And she... No, made, I'm sorry. I don't mean to... to he held up two fingers. No, he, he, he held up two fingers. And he said, Nicolette, how many fingers am I holding up? And all I could make out was Nicolette made some sort of grunting noise. I could not understand. It was unintelligible to me. And her mother said, Nicolette, be nice. And I said, what, what happened? And... The mother said, Nicolette just said, I am not retarded. Uh -huh. uh, and so I know, you know, you're not supposed to use that term. But right. I, I mean, it just shows that, you know, she's aware and people treat her as if something's really wrong with her brain. Uh, and, on a, and on some level, there's nothing wrong with her brain. And on the other level, to control her body, of course, everything's wrong with her brain. So it's just tragic. She needs help with everything. Uh, yeah. The, the, the defense, uh, once we won the case on liability, the county decided to give the case to outside counsel uh, to defend on damages. And they were extremely, extremely aggressive about that. And one thing that they did, which, you know, defendants do in cases like this, of course, is they get their own life expectancy expert. Mm -hmm. to try to say, you know, the damages aren't that great because she's not going to live that long and, and that sort of thing. And, and as a plaintiff, uh, you, you know, you almost dare them to put a witness like that on the stand. Right, right. Well, I, I thought it was, and I guess the jury wouldn't have been able to hear about this in the liability um, trial, but I, I, I was reading in your the Bill of Particulars, I think it's called, um, about what a hardworking young woman that she was, that she was, she, while she was in school, she was working three different, at three different salons and also going to cosmetology school, it sounded like, while in high school? Her goal was to eventually open her own salon, and I believe her aunt has a salon. Yeah. And uh, you, you can see from the picture, she was just a stunning young woman and, and put a lot of effort into her appearance and um, that was what she loved and that's what she wanted to do. And that's what she aspired to do was to have her own salon. And, you know, even now with the, you know, the disabled state that she's in, she still goes and gets her nails done, I think every week. And, you know, they make that a priority because that's something that gives her her joy at this point. And, um, yeah, she's, she was really a remarkable young woman. And, the fact that she is still as active as she is, is remarkable to me as well. The other thing that's remarkable about it is the family is just insist on doing everything for her. They won't institutionalize her. Uh, her friends, even though all of these years have gone by, her friends still come by and take her out frequently. She, sadly, she's witnessing all of her friends now get married and have children and that sort of thing, which is something, of course, she can't do, so. Right. The tragedy continues. Yeah. yeah. God, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, really. Well, um, I, tell our um, listeners, if, if the case hadn't settled, how, how would it have progressed? What would have happened next? 
So we were all ready to pick a jury and start our damages trial, and we would have uh, used those uh, exhibits that we showed you. Uh, we would have put the uh, neurosurgeon on the stand uh, and the mother on the stand. We would have shown the day in the life video that we produced. Uh, and of course, we would have uh, put our life care planner on the stand and, and then the economist. Uh, and, and it would have been with a different jury. Yeah. Yes, it would have been with a different jury. How much are they told about um, the, the underlying, how the underlying injury happened? Yeah, so it, it, if you're in the damages portion of the trial, they would really just be told that, you know, it's already been determined by another jury that the defendants are responsible. So, you know, there's pros and cons to using the same jury, obviously. If the same jury is angry, you right. know, that gave you a liability verdict, that would drive damages up. Uh, right. So that was a trade-off we made here. Uh, but again, ultimately, we were able to successfully settle the case. And, and the reason we settled the case, uh, well, the, obviously, there's a variety of reasons to settle the case. The certainty of the outcome, you know, no appeal and that sort of thing, and, and less expense. Uh, but with res our life care plan told us that she needed a certain amount of money per month to take care of her for the rest of her life. And the number was about $18,000. And so we were able to effectuate a settlement that paid her that amount of money, guaranteed for her life or 40 years, whichever was longer, longer uh, adjusted for inflation 4% per year, plus gave her uh, a, a seven-figure bank account uh, wow. for other incidental expenses. So, th and that was really what the case was about, making sure that, you know, she was taken care of. And I, I will tell you that for us, for me in particular, you know, one thing that was uh, very rewarding was at the end of the case when we resolved it and we sat down with the family, the father, who's a very hardworking guy, drives a truck for a living, works really hard, uh, you know, said to me, you know, with tears in his eyes, you know, thank you, I, I can die in peace now. Oh, so wow. all too often, you know, as lawyers, we don't get that sense of satisfaction if right. you change somebody's life or something like that. So we got to do, uh, yeah, it's win-win. Well, it's just a tremendous work. I, I, I did want to ask one other question. Did Was there any element of punitives involved, or is that, was that not allowed against the county? No, no punitive. No. Although okay. when we okay. uncovered all of these documents that they hadn't given over, believe me, I was <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, and part of, you know, just another note on that, Ted had briefly mentioned some of the appeals and so forth that had gone on during discovery in the case. The county had tried to get out of the case and had made motions to dismiss, which had gone up on appeal, all the while sitting on these documents. Hmm. You know, whether the attorney involved knew or not, we'll never know. I'd like to think he didn't because he was, you know, at the end of the day, he was a good guy. Um, but I, I think about that, you know. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's upsetting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the case could have easily been dismissed on a motion for summary judgment. You know, and you see it so many times uh, where 
parties just don't do what they're supposed to with turning over documents that are uh, that are you know important and relevant and you know uh, make the case. Um, you know, and well, you, you wonder how many times cases get thrown out when yeah. they've withhold withheld documents like that. Right, and well, and when you're not in the situation where you can go and look through the documents yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Terrifying. Um, well, well, Ted and Aaron, this has just been a, a, a great, uh, a great case, great work by the two of you and, and congratulations to both you and your clients. Uh, and, um, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Iacone versus Nassau County, New York and Pasanisi. Uh, and it was tried up in, uh, Nassau County, New York, uh, in November of 2017 and resulted in a $25,425,000, uh, settlement. And we have been talking to Ted Rosenberg and Aaron Hargis at Rosenberg and Gluck. And you can look up Ted and Aaron at lilawyer.com. Guys, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>